Thank you, Benji, for leading us in our worship, and we will continue to worship as we open the Scriptures, and we'll continue in our series in First Timothy, and as you'll see from the screen, I've titled my message today, The Biblical Portrait of Church Elders, and uh, we did a little introduction on this last week, and we'll continue in some more detail today, and uh, God willing, next time finish this chapter. So if you follow along with me, I'll read from verses 1 to 7 in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Interesting to note just there, John was mentioning the desires that the Lord places in our hearts. This is that kind of thing. Verse 2, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Verse 4, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 6, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. May God add a blessing to his word this morning. Last Sunday, uh, we did affirm from Scripture that Christ Jesus is the head of the church, and he exercises his authority over his church through spiritually mature elders to shepherd his people. I gave that message as a lead into this passage owing mainly to the glut of man-made management systems that govern many of our churches today. We needed to see that God in Christ has ownership of the church and we dare not as a people mess with that because that's the way God has designed his body to function the body of his people, the church but as I said last week we also need to see from the scriptures that the Lord is is real serious about when it comes to the kind of men who are to be elders overseers, pastors and deacons in his churches he's real serious about that and he goes into some detail. And so this is important for all the church because I'm sure the church only wants to affirm and recognize those who meet these divine qualifications. Okay? Nothing less should come into our, the equation. And so though well known, it is sad to see how often these requirements um, these requirements are glaringly ignored in many churches today. They really are. Only last week a man was telling me of the difficulty that he and his wife were having in finding a church that not only teaches the Bible, but finding a church where its leaders practice what the Bible says. He was really struggling with his present minister, who he believed was a rank unbeliever 
And one prior to that was a minister who rejected the deity of Christ and the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And the one prior to that, according to him, blatantly proved that he was not a brave approach in some moral area. So he, this guy was really struggling. Well, as we come to the scriptures today, here we have the inspired qualifications of what an elder or a leader should be in the local church. And as we touched on last week, this office, this work, it should be a ministry that some men, not all men, we get that from verse 1, it says, if any man, so have the idea, if any man, it's not necessarily all men, if any man will aspire to the work, that is that they will desire to be involved in this work. And so these men will aspire, they will desire, they'll, they'll stretch forward, they will reach out to do this work. Now this is not an ambition, as I said, for power and status, like some do actually uh, climb that ladder in the church governorship. It's not an ambitious for power or status, but it's a reaching forward for spiritual maturity. That's what it is. Just like the Apostle Paul, remember? He pressed forward. He reached for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Philippians chapter 1, 3 verse 14. That's what it is. It's a reaching forward to serve the chief shepherd by serving and shepherding God's flock. So here are 15 qualifications that Paul gives so that we as a people of God will know what spiritual maturity looks like. Now before we look at these qualifications, there's a couple of things I want you to understand here and make sure it's very clear with you today. First of all, most of these qualities that we have read are prescribed elsewhere in the Scriptures for every Christian, including women. Because as we talked, the Bible is quite clear that those who are elders and pastors in the church are to be male men. Men. And so, but here we are that most of these prescriptions are elsewhere. When I said male men, I didn't mean male men. <laughs> Someone's pretty quick there. They're meant to be men. That's males, okay? I'm just making sure on this gender equality here. A male is a man. Okay, and so, um, so they're all most of them are prescribed elsewhere in Scripture for everyone to follow. So what this tells us is that we can read this and understand that this is something that we should be pressing forward to. Because why? It's all about godliness. It's another tag name. It's all about godliness here. So, ladies, and don't nod off and thinking that this is irrelevant for you. Because this is a word from the Lord for you as well. Secondly, spiritual maturity takes time. It takes effort and time and discipline. We have that in First Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. It takes time. There's no shortcuts to godliness and spiritual maturity. Not like today where we like everything to be instant everything. There's no shortcuts. And so the crucial question is, are you, am I involved in the process of spiritual maturity? That's the question. And thirdly, this section is not saying that elders must be perfect because they are not. Look at me. It's not saying that elders are perfect and must be perfect. 
for most of these qualities, no elder could ever say, ha ha, I've arrived. I've made it, I've arrived. There's always going to be room for growth in all of us, including the elders. As you know, perfect spiritual maturity will only arrive for all believers, including elders, when the Lord takes us home, right? That, we're told that in Ephesians 4 verse 13. But at the same time, what we have here is a standard, a plumb line for aspiring elders and present elders and for all of us to keep working towards if we want to look at this as spiritual maturity. Even Paul said regarding this leadership ministry, this is what he said in 2 Corinthians 2.16, who is adequate for these things? You're kind of asking that as a statement and a, a question. And then he adds a little bit later on in 3 verse 5 and 6, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant. So like Paul, the elder's attitude should be, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, 1 Timothy 1.12. That's what the attitude of an elder should be. Now, Alex has covered a few of these qualifications or a few extra qualifications that we don't see here in Timothy that we see in Titus. So I'm not going to be touching on those. I'm just going to be looking at uh, briefly at these that are in our text. And also, when I refer to elders, as we looked at in past studies, elders and pastors and deacons, or King James Version will have bishop, they're all the same deal, right? They're all the same person. They're just different descriptions of different areas of work within that office. And so since these qualifications are not arranged also in any obvious groupings, what we're going to do is just take them as they come in the order that the Apostle Paul gives them in these few verses. And so the first one is, the first one is elders are to be above reproach. In other words, they are to be blameless. Now this quality, as I said, does not mean an elder never makes mistakes or that he has a perfect track record. That's perfectionism. If that were so, none of us would make it. It's all about how we respond to situations in life. It means that when something does go wrong, or someone throws us a curveball in life, in whatever area it is, how does the elder handle that situation, that issue, that problem, that temptation, whatever it might be? That is the real question. How does he handle it? Does he handle it openly and repentantly and righteously and in a godly manner? You see, if this man's life is characterized by dealing with this thing, these kind of things in that way, he is above reproach. So it's about a characteristic. As I said Last week, this above reproach heads the list here. It heads the list here in Timothy and it heads the list in, in Titus because character quality is what the Lord looks for, right? Whether it be elders or it be any of us. It's your character that the Lord looks for. It's not how many times you come to church in a year or how many times you pray every day or how many times you read your Bible. He doesn't stack all those things up and give you a tick if you meet a qualification. It's character which covers a whole of life. That's what he looks at. 
And so this is not about perfectionism, as I said. You know, the Greek word here has the idea of not having anything in your life that the enemy might lay hold of and be able to legitimately use to accuse you. That's what above reproach kind of means. In other words, an elder or prospective elder, or anyone for that matter, must not be living a double life. A double life where he's in church and is all saintly and then where he's perhaps in the home or in the workplace and he's anything but that. He's not saintly, he's downright devilish. There's no room for that. So it must be that his home life, his business life, his leisure life are all above reproach when nothing can be held against them. Is that how it is with your life? Because this is across the board. This, this is how all believers should be living. And to measure a man as to whether he's above reproach, we are given this remaining list that we see here in verses um, 2 to 7. Uh, and it has to do with proving his uprightness of moral character. And so this is kind of under the umbrella of uh, being above reproach. And the first one is we see uh, the, he has to be a one-woman man or have eyes for his wife only. And your text will read, a husband of one wife. And this has caused some confusion over the years as to its meaning. Some have said that this rules... this absolutely rules out anyone who's been divorced. Some have said, well, if you've been remarried for whatever reason, uh, even if your wife, prior wife passed away and you're married again, that rules that out because you've had two wives. And, and we get to all sorts of cockeyed ideas. But, and this is lots of controversy. But what this word basically means here is that the elder is to be a one-woman man. In other words... He's not a philanderer. He's not a flirt who gives himself over to fancying other women other than his wife. Nor is he the man who is enslaved to the sin of mental lust. Whether single or married, he will have many years, not months, not weeks, many years of history that will prove his mental and physical sexual purity. Plain and simple, an elder is a guy who is committed to and loves his wife and no one else, no other female shares his affections. He is a one-woman man. That's what it means. Keep it simple, saints. Secondly, or thirdly, I've got here, he's to be temperate. He's to be vigilant or sober-minded. Now, although this word originally meant not mixed with wine, wine, it seems to have here a wider meaning. It has the idea of being alert, being watchful, or, or being someone who's clear-headed on a matter. Basically, that means to be calm. He's not a flighty person who jumps to conclusions without waiting for all the facts to come in so that he can weigh up the matter. You know people like that. They'll jump to conclusions and they'll roar off on a tangent. He's not to be that kind of person. The temperate man is sensible and dignified. He's a steady man that knows how to control himself no matter what crops up or what the situation is. Folks, the church need men like this as its leaders. 
Too many today are not steady, they're not calm, they're not clear-headed when difficult situations arise. For example, we do not need extremists, we do not need conspiracy theorists, and there are heaps of them, and dare I say, some are even in the church. We need men like the sons of Issachar. You know who Issachar was? He was a great man in the Old Testament. You can read about him in First Chronicles chapter 12, and verse 32. And this is, this is what is described of them. They were men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. The sons of Issachar were temperate, vigilant, and sober-minded men. And that's who our elders need to be. Fourth, prudent. This means self-controlled, sober, or sober-minded. And so the result of being temperate is that of being prudent. In other words, a sober-minded man, as in being temperate, is where you will see sensibility and sound-mindedness come to the fore. You'll be of a sound mind. This will not be a man who is indifferent or who just cruises through life and treats spiritual matters lightly. It will not be a man like that. Nor is the prudent man necessarily, by the way, you might be thinking, oh, what a boring old chore. No, no. A prudent man is not necessarily cold and somber and always boring. No, not necessarily. But he will never, ever be impulsively selfish and be a guy, a man who, who allows his personal feelings to rule and reign and give him direction all the time. We live in a day and age where people rule their lives by how they feel, right? It's rampant out in the culture. Even see with our plebiscite and our political, it's all about how you feel. That's what rules and reigns. No, this kind of man will not allow his feelings to rule and reign. He will be a man who is self-disciplined and orderly and controlled as he views everything that comes across his path through God's eyes. That's the kind of man he'll be. His mind will be controlled by God's truth and he will live out Philippians 4 verse 8 which says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now that's being prudent. Fifthly, respectable or orderly. This character trait also allows follows on from the one prior. Some of they kind of mission together here. Because a self-controlled man will also have a respectable and orderly life. Now, I know men who are shockingly disorderly. Don't take my desk in there as an example of being someone shockingly disorderly, by the way, because I don't believe generally I am. Ask my wife. But some men, they couldn't organise themselves out of a paper bag, as we say, right? You might know guys like that. And so often it's in the home where this lack of order and agenda and stability for family is seen. I just loved hearing Benji saying just before when they were doing their family prayers. And so he, he obviously orders his family where his family come together. He's the head of the home and he sees the need to have spiritual input to his family. And so he orders his home like that. That's an indication of being a man of order. So it's not only about just having your lawns mowed every two weeks. Mind you, that may come into it. Or how messy your backyard is. Mind you, that probably will come into it. 
but it's a man of order. Just like some men have a multitude of ideas and maybe start, you know, come guys, they start a hundred different projects. Men are good at projects, you know. We have ideas and everything. And, and, but some men, they just, have you noticed, they just never seem to finish anything. They have all these things started, they have all these ideas, but they never finish it, they never carry through with what they finish. And so often what happens is chaos happens when they put their hand to anything. Putting it plainly, there is no place in the eldership for a man who is not orderly. Hospitable. To more than just your friends. Literally, the original means a lover of strangers. In other words, here is a man who is quick to open his heart and his home to others. He is not afraid to meet new people. His love for people is very evident. And he makes them feel relaxed and welcome, no matter who they are, what background, what ethnicity they come from. He just loves to be hospitable. By the way, here's a classic example that all Christians are exhorted to pursue hospitality, right? We have that in Romans 12 and verse 13. And we're to be hospitable without complaint, First Peter 4 and 9. And please note, this is not for entertaining friends. This is not like asking Kevin and Dawn to my place for dinner, although that's a very good idea and that is being hospitable. But this idea here is to be entertaining those outside your normal circles of friends. Going back to the original root meaning of the word, to be a lover of strangers. And so I was just at a place yesterday, actually, with my son James, and we were picking up some stuff he had purchased on um, uh, Gumtree, I think it was. And we went to this guy's house, and that guy and the lady came out, and you know what? By the end of the hour and a half that we were there, you know what I was impressed with? I was impressed with his and his wife's hospitality to us as strangers. And I'm thinking, wow, this is how we should be all the time to those who we don't know and as strangers. We were offered cups of tea and coffee and we were offered this and offered that. I, I just actually like being in their company. Isn't that right, James? Yeah. It really showed me this is how Christians should be. This is what we're to be. This is what aspiring elders should shine in. Be a lover of strangers. Okay, we go to the next one. He is able to teach. He is the only qualification that specifically relates to elders, giftedness or function in the church. All the others are about character quality and smack right in the middle, you have a functionality statement. He is to be able to teach. And it's also the only qualification here that sets him apart from what is required in those who serve as deacons, which we will get to and cover briefly next time in 8 to 13. And so we may wonder, why is this functional qualification placed right amongst these moral qualities? Why put it here? Why not tack it on the end? No, I believe while we're getting caught up in all this, and as the reader is reading all this, we're thinking of our elders, and right now you're probably thinking of me and Bill and, and Peter and, um, and Steve here and, and, and so forth, because right smack in, in front of all this is... A man who teaches God's truth needs to be a man who practices what he preaches, right? Amen. And so that's why I believe the Spirit of God has put this here right, this functional statement. And so, okay, he, he, he's got to be able to teach. 
and have these moral qualities that we've looked at so far. And so here's the one who teaches us. He's got to be able to teach, but he's got to be able to practice what? He needs to be able to practice what he teaches. You see, a pastor or elder who teaches God's truth will only have credibility in the church if he is characterized by all these other moral qualities. In other words, teachers and elders must be men who not only say what they know from the Word of God, but also be what they say. So an elder is one who is able to teach, is able to communicate, explain what the Scriptures mean, which requires, by the way, being skilled in the ability to study and determine that meaning. Why? Titus 1.9 says this, I'm going to steal Alex's thunder, he's already covered it, so that he will be able to exhort in, in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's why he needs to be skilled in study. And so that's why he needs to, be, to teach. This is not saying that every elder, by the way, must be a public speaker. This is not saying that every elder must be preaching from a pulpit here in a public manner. Actually, Paul indicates this in chapter 5, verse 17, where he highlights that within the eldership of a local church, there will be some, or maybe even one, who concentrates specifically on preaching and teaching while the other elders do not, in a public manner. But all elders need to be able to teach in some capacity in the church, as all our elders do. They are in home groups, they're here, they preach from the pulpit, um, we have Bill Panaluna who is away at the moment. He doesn't take a public place, but he's excellent at the home group situation and definitely one-on-one in counselling. And so he does that. Number eight, we're not addicted to wine, not to be a drunkard. The word is not given to much wine. There are all sorts of theories about the kind of wine that was used in Bible times. But there's one thing very clear that we can take from this. What the Apostle Paul is concerned about here is about drinking intoxicating wine to the point of drunkenness, a loss of self-control. That's what he's concerned about. The fact that our Lord and the disciples, they did drink wine, it was a common experience of that day, but it was not to be overindulged in. In other words, there is to be no reproach in this area. Although the Scriptures do not prohibit drinking alcoholic wine we do know right we do know that wine is a mocker strong drink is a brawler and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise proverbs 20 in verse 1 and coming to the new testament drunkenness is a sin galatians 5 21 and it's not to be part of a believer's life and so this actually a matter of fact in first corinthians 5 11 drunkenness calls for church discipline and so regarding elders and every believer, we are all to be temperate, prudent, and self-controlled, which is, by the way, Galatians 5.23, which is the fruit of the Spirit. So overindulging in wine is out. Actually, none of us should be mastered by any harmful practice or substance especially an elder. Why? Because he's an example. He is to be an example. No believer should be enslaved to addictive substances, for example, like tobacco or drugs or alcohol, or even, dare I say, to overeating, because gluttony is also a sin. 
A spiritual man will have control in these areas. Number nine, he is not to be pugnacious. In other words, he is not to be violent. This may seem unnecessary here. You know, who's being violent? That's something that belongs to the street gangs or whatever or some out-of-control man. Sad to say, I do know of a couple of churches, Bible-believing churches, where elders have become so angry they've come to blows. Simply put, an elder must control his anger so that he does not respond to provocation by decking the other guy. That's completely out of the question. He must not do that. No matter how riled or however pumped up he may be, it's no excuse. But understand, this also includes violence in the home. As any believer, believing man, and especially again elder because he's an example, he should never ever, no one should ever hit his wife or beat his children abusively. And when he has to spank his kids, he uses control. He does not abuse them. There is no place in the Christian's life for any verbal or physical violence, period. Number 10, gentle, considerate, patience, forbearing. So instead of reacting violently, like many people in our culture and society do these days, whether it's road rage or in the home, domestic violence or whatever, it's happening all the time and it's getting worse. So instead of reacting violently, a godly elder and you as a Christian is to be marked by gentleness that forbears even when wrong is done to you. This kind of man will not retaliate but will rather readily and willingly pardon the one who has done ill against him. He values the good in others and he never holds a grudge. You know, it's easy to hold a grudge. Spiritual, mature person will never hold a grudge. You know what Jesus said? He turns the other cheek. That's what he should do. We're all told in Philippians verse four, chapter 4, verse 5, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. That's a word to all of us. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. And sad to say, many men, and you will know uh, some, who have left the ministry because they, they cannot handle anymore a simple thing like criticism. They begrudge their critics so much they often retaliate with spiteful and vengeful spirit in many different ways. An elder must be a man so softened, so softened by God's grace, that he deals with people and even those who have wronged him as God has dealt with him. Peaceable or uncontentious, not quarrelsome. That's what he's meant to be as well. The Greek word here is a macho, which means peaceful. Now, it's not so much about going to an anger management class where you can kind of psychologically get these things under control. No, no. But it's more to do with a reluctance even to quarrel in the first place. Our slang term, macho, is about a man proving how tough he is. Right? That's the opposite to a macho, this Greek word that we have here. An elder should be, should be one who never wants to 
enter into fruitless quarrels, whether over theology or over anything else. You know, some people, have you come across some people, they just love to pick a fight? They just love to pick on some little thing that will kind of wind you up and, and, and they just love to pick a fight. Well, that has no place in the elder's life. You know, a contentious man, a man like that, who picks up on the little things and, and just so he can stir up strife, a man like that is a serious hindrance or would be a serious hindrance to the unity of a godly leadership team. So he cannot have a place in that team. He's to be free from the love of money. In other words, just not a money lover. And so this is actually final in this list of character requirements. He must not be in it for what he can get. He's not a money lover. The Bible has a lot to say about money, actually. But one thing we need to be clear, it definitely does not say that God wants every believer to prosper financially as the current heretical prosperity gospel teaches. He never says that in his word. Riches are not wrong per se, but they are and can be spiritually dangerous. Paul warns, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction, 1 Timothy 6.9. Every Christian, but especially church leaders, must be clear that they cannot serve God and money. We have that in Luke 16, verse 13 to 15. So what we have looked at thus far is the moral qualities that are characterized, that are to characterize an elder's or a prospective elder's life. Now the remaining qualifications are a record of the accomplishment in three specific areas, okay? That's what we have for the rest. But these last three qualifications are really about leadership by example. In other words, I can preach the Bible correctly, I can even be eloquent, I can be quite convincing, but if my life does not line up with my teaching, I lack integrity. As someone has said, teaching sets the nails into the mind, but example is the hammer that drives them deep. An elder must lead by example. And first here, he has a record of managing his own household well. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This is what we have in verses 3 and 5 of our text today. Now this includes all aspects of a man's family life. It includes his relationship with his wife, the relationship with his kids. It, it, it concerns how he manages his finances in his home, how he pays the bills, or is he a slacker that leaves them for three months until he gets all these other fines, etc. It, it involves all those kind of things. But note the special emphasis Paul places here on the elder's children. You see, the first thing you look at as to whether a man has a well-managed family, you look at his kids, you look at his children. Are they obedient? Are they good-humored? Or are they rebellious and discourteous and sullen? Are they an embarrassment to the parents in their church? That's what you look for. Now, I know kids can be a handful. and I speak from experience because, you know, my wife and I have had five but at the end of the day, 
and elders' kids are to be obedient and courteous and respectful towards one another and toward their parents and people in general. When I see a child who is still under the roof of their parents slacking back at their parents with words and an attitude that is just total disrespect, I cringe. I honestly cringe. I start to think, wow, if that kid is like that now, what's his kids going to be like? And then I think about the parents. Why, why is that child like that? Why is that child so respectful, discourteous, and such an embarrassment? And my question has to go over to the parents, and particularly the father, because he's the one who's the head of the home. Now this does not necessarily govern the children here after they've grown up and after they've left home, as the word here uses for small children. But here is the test of a man. What does his training of his children say about his leadership ability? Just look at his kids. Paul does not, does not mean that an elder's children should never disobey and they should always be perfect little angels because we all know that that's impossible because they're all born with sin nature. There's only one child ever born in this world without a sin nature and that was Jesus Christ. But Paul does mean that an elder's family should be exemplary. If a man's children are rebels, disrespectful, and reject the teaching of the Lord while they're in the home, for goodness sake, do not increase his area of responsibility to the entire church. By the way, this verse demands that elders and prospective elders have a priority that comes before ministry in the church. And you know what that is? ministry to your families what a tragedy for a man to be so involved in church work that he neglects his family and his children grow up to hate the church and the Lord because of that and this happens I know of a family I know of families that this has happened Especially missionaries who, who send their kids off to some mission school or, and don't see them for a one year to the next all in the name of mission. No, I'm not criticizing. I'm just pointing out an example. I know of a family. And right to this day, there's an adult man who's not far off being my age. Can't stand his parents. And he can't stand the Lord. He can't stand the church. And it all boils down to that man's ministry. He never ministered to his own family and children. He's not to be a new convert or a novice to the Christian faith. Obviously, any believer will need time to develop all these qualities that we've looked at, right? He's going to need time. This doesn't happen in a few weeks or a few months. No one instantly becomes skilled in Bible study and teaching. This takes years. But so often, sad to say, the church can be guilty of pushing new converts into the limelight, especially if they are some movie star-like person or they've got charisma that a lot of people don't have and skills that many of us do not have and they kind of push them into the limelight. For example, just because, for instance, if we had a business executive get saved under one of your ministry and comes along to the church, that is no reason to quickly affirm him as a deacon to take care of the church finances. No reason whatsoever. Paul says, 
Don't do that. He's a novice. And what you're doing is all you're doing is you're setting him up for a fall because he's going to become conceited and prideful. And then all people will condemn him and say, look at him, and they'll come down on him. Just like Satan is now condemned, the text tells us, who what? He also fell too when he became what? Prideful and conceited, right? Part of Christian growth involves God's humbling us through trials. A recent convert hasn't learned that lesson yet. And finally, a good reputation with those outside the church. I remember many years ago being associated with a church where a very rich landowner was one of its leaders. And being in business with my brother in the agricultural, as a contractor, we soon learned and were warned by many farmers in the community that doing business with this man would be bad for us. It would be to our loss. My brother and I were embarrassed and ashamed as one after another, those outside the church told us of this man's harsh and dodgy business practices. He should have been known by those outside the church for his upright moral character. But sadly, the opposite was true. The devil had this man exactly where he wanted him, in a place where his testimony was a complete joke and his testimony was one that only marred the name of Jesus Christ and reflected on the body of Christ, the local church. Folks, we, need, we, we may be maligned, as many are today, over this plebiscite thing and, and our stand for what is right according to what God said. Many of us may, may, may be maligned by non-Christians for our godly behavior. And no doubt many of you have had that in your workplace, etc., etc., we may be slandered because our lives convict others and show others up of their sinfulness and their debauchery. We may be slandered for that, but we should never give cause for reproach by our ungodly behavior. Never. We all, especially the elders, are to have a good reputation with those outside the church. Now, in conclusion... There you have it, the qualifications for leaders and elders. What a task it is for the church. By the way, the church is the most exciting body of people on earth. you agree with that? It is. We have a hope. We have a saviour. We have an eternal hope. The Lord's coming. We actually know what's going to happen to the world because the Bible sees it clearly most exciting body of people on earth. We fellowship with a, a body of eternally saved sinners. What for? For our own pleasure, for our own glory. No, we fellowship together with one another from different backgrounds, from, from different areas and, and countries even here this morning. What for? For God's pleasure and His glory. We're responsible for recognizing and submitting to God's appointed elders. We are left here in this body of elders and deacons and saints as brothers and sisters in the Lord. What for? To be ambassadors for Christ so that we might be a light to a lost world. That's what we're left there for. We do this until we are called home via the grave 
or by when the Lord comes into the air and calls us home. That's what we do. That's our mission. And our leaders are vitally necessary for this body to function as God designed it to function. We're called to submit to them. And so we need to pray for our elders. Let us keep them, every one of us, let us keep them before the Lord in these last days before the Lord returns. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, this has been a meaty passage, a passage where I know I have had to examine my own heart. And so, Lord, I just thank you for that. And all of us here this morning, as we have examined our own hearts in relation to pursuing godliness and pursuing spiritual maturity, Lord, check us, we pray. Weigh us in the balances. And where we are found wanting, help us to pursue godliness. We want to be those people who are your true ambassadors. We want to be a church where the elders and leaders are qualified according to your word. At the same time, Father, we want to be a church, one body together, to be a light in a dark place. For this world is a dark place. and We have a hope. And we are to love strangers. We just pray for those who are lost, are outside of Christ, our work colleagues, maybe people in our own home. Lord, we long to see them come to Christ through repentance and faith. So use us, we pray. Use our example. Use our changed life, that we are new creatures in Christ. Use that to attract others to Christ. So, Father, we commit one another to you and give you thanks for your word to us today. In Jesus' name, and the people of God said, Amen.